we, we often have the sense that those who sort of protect their convictions, that that is the best thing you could do. But I, that is actually hopelessness. If you mm. close off, if you close off your convictions to the possibility of them actually being um, uh, effectuated, put, put into effect, um, uh, th- then 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 you're in a you're in a bad place. Welcome to the Yahtzee Podcast. I'm your host, Justin McRoberts. My guest on this episode is actually my first two-time guest, author Michael Weir. During season one, Michael shared his unique angle on not just the idea of politics, but the human practice of politics. As someone who's lived and worked in Washington, D.C., with the women and men who often end up characterized as either heroes or demons and not much in between, Michael sees the human interplay and the redemptive arc of American politics. His book, aptly entitled Reclaiming Hope, hadn't hit shelves last time we talked, and I think it possesses a pretty intriguing corner of the public conversation this side of the 2016 election. For that reason, and many more, I thought it was time for something of a check-in with Michael Weir. Check it out. So, uh, you know, last time we, you know, we talked a little while ago during last, not much has happened, really, <laughs> since yeah, I feel been, like it's been real slow, man. A lot of smooth sailing. Uh, yeah, everything has gone really according to plan. Uh, <laughs> wow. It's- Exactly what we expected. It's exactly yeah. what what everyone expected. If there if there was a plan, <clears throat> it's a diabolical one. Uh, I, I wanted to I I want to kind of dive right in and use it with sort of like a sort of like a check in uh, and want to talk yeah. about you know the book that's out and how people are responding to it. Um, and but one of the one of the starting places I want to jump off on is is like things happening now. Uh, that resonate with or kind of have have a connection to bits of the conversation we had before uh and you you did a great job of talking about the the sort of increasing volatility in relationships between people on one side or the other of the uh, of the political spectrum or you know theoretically the one side or the other i'm not so sure i buy the whole one side or the other thing in general but the, but you know, folks who are yeah. Republicans don't want their kids to marry Democrats. Folks who are Democrats right. don't want their kids to marry. De- well, and then there's this other tension. So I want to talk about it again. So I, like the way you see that playing itself out now. Uh, but yeah. I, I want to talk about the the political tension or, or the, the anger, the frustration with the press. Because <laughs> to, to today or yesterday, I think it might have been yesterday. Maybe it was this morning. Uh, there was a reporter <laughs> who, in Montana, was literally picked up off the ground and slammed to the ground by a, a con- a, by a congressional nominee. Uh, yeah, and it's not just that it happened that that is that I find interesting and compelling and really strange and sad. It's the defense of that action right. by a lot of right. folks who basically come down to saying, well. He kind of deserved it because he's a member of the press. Right. You and I both have friends who are like who are journalists. I'm a fan of journalism. You're a fan of journalism as a discipline. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen uh, and the sort of talk about like a place in which there's increasing tension between people in the political world? I mean, there, this sort of it's almost as if you have to choose sides now 
or not have to. You're being sort of like backed into a corner to try to choose sides now about like, are you for the press or are you against <laughs> the press? Which is such right. a strange question to have to ask. Can you talk a little yeah. about your experience? I'm not looking for answers, but like, what are you seeing? Like the people you're talking to, what are your experiences like around that odd new development? All right. So um, in some ways, right, these tensions come from the increasing expectation that's placed on politicians and the people who work for them uh, for being able to, quote, unquote, you know, control the message, to mm. drive the message, to win the day. Mm. Um, and and when that is sort of the, the metric um, by which, you know, politicians and people who work for them measure their success, um, then, uh, you know, it, it only ups the adversarial nature. I, I mean, uh, the, the relationship between press and the people they report on is sort of quintessentially adversarial. Huh. Um, yeah. But, but we've, we've never, um, because, of, because of the proliferation of uh, tools that politicians can use to get around the press, and frankly, the, the, um, the ways that press and media can get to politicians um, mm. So, they're, they're, you know, I think politicians feel increasingly under under pressure. So I obviously don't don't uh, uh, from, from what I know about the story, I, I don't sympathize too much with the, the congressman no. uh, for his, his physical response. But um, but uh, having worked in politics, I, I know what it uh, what it feels uh, uh, feels like working for politicians who uh, uh are being hounded by the press right. and who are being trolled on social media right. and that media outlets are, um, you know, finding all kinds of creative ways to sort of uh, pressure politicians to respond or right. sort of, you know, blow them up. And so, it, it, you know, I, I just think um, the, the, the pressure to control the message has increased and so have sort of the, the the weapons of engagement and so that's that's hmm. a large reason why we're seeing this um this sort of um uh acceleration yeah. of, of disputes um and, and i like the way you said it just now we talked about the, the the relationship between the press and any given politician or the, the you know the uh, you know political power centers is is quintessentially adversarial that like yeah. the expectation should be that Regardless of where you're coming from, you know, as you're because everyone's got their angle, whether you're, you know, you're right. working for CNN or Fox or Breitbart or whatever. I mean, you've got you've got an angle and that's got to be OK. But that there is this necessary you said, quintessential adversarial uh, like I'm not for you. Like that's got to be right. that, that's got to be kind of a universal in order to in order to do the job well. I can't be yeah. I can't be coming in here and trying to help you tell your story the way you want to tell it. That's not my job as as the press, and it's it, right. like that seems to be also a place where <laughs> there's again a bit of expectation, like you're saying, like the you know these guys want to tell their story, these gals want to tell the story the way they want to tell it. We've almost lost yeah. touch as a populace, like with the expectation and the hope, that, like hey, there's yeah. an intermediary here that I can go to this network and go to this you know, this paper and these folks are going to try to cut through the muck. We've sort of right. lost touch with that a bit. Yeah. I, and 
You know, I, I, so I, I think all of that is true. And I think that is, you know, in this moment, um, you know, a lot of emphasis should be should be placed on that. I mean, I think uh, much of the journalism from the Washington Post and New York Times over the last 10 to 14 days, especially, has been uh, has been astounding and yes. uh, has really restored a lot of uh, my confidence in the in the value of 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 the press, um, which you know was always there. But it's, uh, all I mean to say is it's been an amazing amazing a couple of weeks for those institutions. Yes, uh, I, I do want to say though, you know, um, there is there has to be a middle ground between. Um, particularly when, when we're talking about interpreting uh, politicians' words and uh, that kind of thing, there has to be a middle ground between, you know, it's not reporters' job to necessarily give the benefit of the doubt. But I, I will say, I, and maybe it's because reporters are expected to react and respond and drive drive clicks more than ever before, but I also see plenty of circumstances of um, – journalists uh, interpreting politicians' words uh, and conveying them in, like, the least um, yes. sympathetic way. Yeah, um, right. And, and sort of conveying sort of the worst possible interpretation of what could have been said. Right. Um, and so, for instance, and this is a controversial example, but I want to use it because it is controversial. It's important to get this, this stuff right. Um, uh, ben Carson was quoted on a radio show yesterday, um, and many of the tweets said, uh, f from from esteemed reporters with blue check marks next to their name, uh, the, the, the tweet was, <laughs> the tweet, uh, you know, their, their tweets were, Ben Carson says poverty is a state of mind. And if you look at the transcript of the remarks, um, he actually speaks to the material aspects of poverty. And then he says, but you know, I also think it's, it's a, a, a matter, it's a state of mind as well. He, yeah. he says, he says sort of, um, you know, uh, if people, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here just to be clear, but he basically makes a point that if, um, if, if people are going to be frivolous with resources, uh, it doesn't, uh, to, to a certain extent, um, if they get an extra uh, $50, they're just going to be frivolous with that extra $50. Now, you could talk about the ways in which that sort of mentality has been used to justify cutting the social safety net right. and, yep. and, and doing things that I don't support. But but the, the idea that we need to take shortcuts in that debate to just say, you know, Ben Carson doesn't think poverty is about not having money or resources. He thinks it's right. a psychological issue um, is uh, – then conservatives see that, uh, and it undermines their trust in journalism because they read the transcript right. or they see Fox News. Um, the other example, which I won't, you know, everyone saw the Pope photo. Well, you know, as people who actually report on the Vatican know, that when the Pope takes photos, uh, his face is off. He, he doesn't like smiling and sort of canned photo right. ops. So the, uh, his photo with President Obama was very much the same, and yet. There were all these memes coming out about how it was a message. The Pope and the Pope was, was unhappy to be with the, with the, yeah. the the president and the and his family. Yeah. And and then what what Fox News and Breitbart are able to do is is show Pope Francis's photo with President Obama and show that it's the same and see look the media is out to to really get your guy and, and my my case is there is enough legitimate stuff 
to get yeah. to, to, to critique President Trump on. We don't have to make things up. No, we don't have really. to exaggerate. And, and in fact, the more you make up, the more you actually, like you're saying, you give folks a doorway to say, well, okay, you're 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 illegitimate in your critique. So it doesn't matter yeah. if you lie this one time. It really doesn't right. matter. Like the what you know, you give me a you give me a foothold to sort of discount your That's your right. witness entirely. That's exactly. Right. Yeah, so you know, again, we talked about the, this sort of adversarial nature of uh, of parties, and we've talked about the adversarial nature of of uh, reporters uh, or, or of the press in relationship to the politics, and that like that adversarial relationship, it's, it's not new per se, but it does seem like in the lead up to and particularly since the election of Donald Trump, that something is sl- somewhat different. That there is sort of an like a this is my take and you tell me what you think. Like there is a kind of a permission maybe to sort of, to give in to that frustration, to give in to maybe the sort of the, the, the lesser responses uh, yeah. to like, I have an enemy or I have, I should say I have someone who's adversarial. I have someone who sees, you know, things differently than I do, even dramatically different, you know, uh, you know, black and white kind of different and then, and what I do with that ends up being the predominant question. And it's almost a permission, it seems, to yeah. like give into that. And that's perfectly okay now. That that seems a little right. bit new. And it kind of goes to that sort of the the biblical teaching around like it's it's what comes out of a person that actually makes makes them unclean. That like right. hey, like I get yes. that you have these feelings. Hey, I get it. That, per, that, you know, this reporter was coming and he was asking questions and you've answered it 35 times. And right, but, right, what, right. but what you do with that, then that's actually definitive. And it seems like yeah. like part of what's new is to say that it doesn't that, that it doesn't matter what's coming out of you, particularly when it comes to that's right. anger, that everything's justified uh, by right. the by the, the you know the danger or the threat of what's happening on the other side, whether it's immigrants or uh, Democrats <laughs> or Republicans uh, or yep. uh, or the media. That's right. Our our hearts are prone to rationalization, and that is true. I think generally, um, but there are areas of life that I think offer um, more concentrated and. Uh, sort of um, pervasive opportunities yeah. um, to rationalize and, and politics is, is absolutely one of those because um, politics is, is supposed to be oriented towards, uh, you know, what's good and what's just and what's, uh, what's helping people that uh, people believe that if their ends are right, then that alt that, justifies the means and mm-hmm. you know a, a big theme of my book a big theme of um is is that for christians that is not the case it shouldn't be the case uh in, in our society at all that uh even if you're able to win in the short term through deception and manipulation uh both of yourself and of voters that in the long term what you actually end up doing is uh undermining uh, our processes and hmm. our institutions generally, and I think undermining uh, the trust and and the relationship that you yourself have yeah. with those you're you're influencing. You get to that in a, in a really specific way in the book, which I've loved and I and I and I love seeing folks respond to it. And we're going to talk about like you seeing people respond to the book in a little bit. But you, there's this great quote. Um, this 
kind of what I feel it was a key moment in the book for someone like me, when you say Christians can't protest for their religious freedom one day and then protest against a mosque opening up down the street the next. Not only does that undermine, and there's that word, not only does that undermine Christian witness in politics, it undermines religious freedom. And as part of what you're getting at just now, it's like how yeah. you respond to the things you're threatened by can honestly undermine the critique you're trying to make about that thing. So you can have a critique, and there is, let's, I mean, there's a legitimate yeah. critique to be made about uh, about the particular of in, uh, particular influence of particular uh, elements of Islam. Right. Uh, there's a, I mean, yeah. if you're not willing to make the critique, you're not paying attention. Right. But how I do that can undermine my like my own pursuit of religious freedom, my own my own witness. That's right. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's actually when when the stakes are raised, when we feel the most under pressure, when we feel like the other side is the most threat that we turn to a utilitarian form of politics. But um, I, I would argue that our response should be just the opposite. When hmm. we feel like norms are being threatened, that's when it's most important to uphold them. Uh, when we feel the most at threat, that's when we ought to, most, uh, uh, ought to focus most on pursuing a sort of the, the safety and inclusion of even those we disagree with. That yeah. uh, sort of when we respond to like with like, um, th then um, uh, we think we're doing it for a just cause, and we might be, hmm. um, uh, but it, it ultimately feeds into the very vicious cycle that we're trying to uh, that we're trying to oppose. Which you actually wrote a great piece. I, I, you popped up yesterday about a trip to I think the town's called Lutton, or it's not Luton, right? Luton. It's Lut yeah, Luton. It, it is Luton, I, I think, which yeah. is Bedfordshire, yeah, England. I, I think so. But... Right? Yeah, there was on it. And you had an uh, interaction with an uh, with an Anglican peace activist named Peter Adams that sort of yeah. that informed a little bit of this sort of like what do you do in the tension thing. Can you recount that a little bit for us and we'll re we'll direct yeah. people to that uh, to that piece uh, from the yeah. from the site. Yeah, so uh, so yeah, it's it's a long it's a long story and so I so yeah, folks should look at the piece but basically Luton is a um a, a sort of microcosm of so many of the themes and forces that we've been discussing over the last year. So Islamophobia and, and white nationalism, uh, uh, issues of social cohesion and, and sort of uh, disintegration. Um, uh, Luton uh, was, is the home to major far-right white nationalist parties and also huh. home to um, uh, uh, Islamic uh, extremists. Um, uh, so the seven seven bombers uh, stopped in London to organize before heading to London, um, which sort of uh, put Luton in on Luton. the national map. Um, yeah, so Luton is about forty five minutes outside of London. So huh. so they stopped in in Luton, gathered, and then I believe they took the train. Um, to, you know, they traveled to London together and executed um, the, the 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 bombing, and that sort of put. A, a lot of international focus and pressure on Luton um, that that created a lot of friction. And I yeah. was hosted by the Church of England in Luton, uh, and, and the Church of England is doing incredible interfaith work in the city. Peter Adams is a part of that. Uh, and I just learned a, a great deal about how uh, faith can play a positive role in, um, in bringing people together that, that, I think are sometimes in sort of 
the, the secular West, our sort of impulse is to see, look at something like Islamic extremism and say, oh, look, you know, religion's the problem. Therefore, if we sort of ignore the role that religion plays, um, you know, we're starving the problem. Actually, what you're doing is making yourself irrelevant um, uh, for people for whom religion is central to their lives and their communities. Um, what what uh, uh, religion and faith can actually um, be used as a positive force to bring people together and to speak to people in a in a way and through a frame that they're used to thinking. And so, uh, I, I tell a story about. Um, spending time with Muslim activists on the ground and, and Anglican activists and even uh, a, a social cohesion police officers, this mm. new kind of model of policing uh, in Luton. And they're all sort of working together to isolate the extremes on both sides. Interesting. Um, and it's, it, was, it was tremendously, uh, tremendously encouraging for me. Social cohesion police officers, like, sort of like creating or like emphasizing – like here's where the actual extremes are, so the folks who aren't in those extremes can recognize one another. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. So there, there, it's a law enforcement unit, but they aren't allowed to make uh, arrests, and so uh, huh. their 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 job is to be in the community. And and because people know that you know the, these folks aren't aren't out to turn you in or sort of um uh, or or sort of uh or, you know make arrests um. Uh, that, that they become trusted in the community. They're able to build sources that are able to say, look, you know, I, I heard, heard, you know, something may be brewing for, you know, next week, or, hey, I think there's an opportunity here for relationship building. Um, and, and people don't feel, people who are, maybe feel uncomfortable about working with police either because of, um, for uh, immigration purposes right. or um, because they're they're concerned that, um, they'll be discriminated against for their for their faith or you know for any number of reasons uh, these officers are able to establish sort of a trusted presence in the community and it's um, you, you know it's a relatively new model so there are only two cities in the UK that have these units I believe Luton and and I think Birmingham. Um, so, so much more research and, and testing needs to be done. But it's it's uh, from my limited experience, you know, being there for for a bit. Um, it, it was a it was a promising model, and they they were just really um, just being able to watch them interact uh, uh, w with community members of different faiths and different backgrounds. Um, I, I was impressed with the work they were doing. So. Your book is in the world. It is in people's hearts and minds. It is <laughs> floating around. It's on bookshelves. Yeah. Um, I mean, last we talked, it wasn't flo it wasn't doing that. It was sort of still sort That's of the right. tail end of the process. Uh, yeah. And there's there's this really incredible truth when it comes to like the making of art that it's never really done. Like you can finish the book in the, in one way. But then, like the the way my artist friend of mine named Lauren Vanderen puts it, she she talks about she makes these pieces that constant that are interactive, like by nature. So she'll make a she'll make a piece and then she'll hang a pen either on it or inside it, and invite people to come and like write on it or respond in some way. And so it's constantly. And I feel like really good art does that in some way, where it's like uh, yeah. like you can listen to the new Kendrick record. That's fine. But that's not really what the Kendrick record is about. It's actually about what it's drawing out of you. Um, can you talk about like seeing people 
respond to your book, conversations you're having? What's it like to have a work that you've made uh, in the lives of people and having them respond to it? You know, it's been, uh, you know, it's been, it's been incredible to hear from uh, uh, different people. I mean, I mean, right. So initially you pretty much just hear, uh, particularly before it's out and, and published and you, you just have sort of advanced copies you hear from sort of people, you know, and that's great because you, you know them and respect their opinion. And, but it's, it's a different experience hearing from people you've never heard of before, who right. have never heard of you before, you know, seeing someone write about the book or maybe even just seeing in a store um, and it, it, it touching them in, in a way or, or speaking to where they are and how they feel. Um, or even, you know, if they, uh, if they disagree strongly with sections mm. of the book, just the, um, the ability to have, um, it's just a wonderful and, and in some ways, um, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, a um, uh, a humbling, and I mean that in the, in the, you know, in the most fundamental sense, humbling experience to have your ideas out there where, um, I'm still thinking about them, but like that product is out there. I don't know who has it. Um, <laughs> and I just have to trust God to you, to use it how, yeah. how he wills. Right. Like I, my, my job in some ways is, is, is done, um, uh, with, with the book. And so, um, you know, it's been, it's been the book released three days before the inaugural. And, um, we've, we're now, you know, 130 or something days into a presidency that, um, has been destabilizing for a lot of folks, even even those who approve of the president. It's like nothing they've ever seen before, and that's yeah. why they like it. Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, it's been interesting to see the book and people interact with the book in this environment um, in a way that I think is fitting. As we talked about last time, one of my hopes for the book was to walk people through, I, I think a lot of you know, there are books about politics that, frankly, are from um, uh, from people who have no experience in politics. Yeah, and, and, you yeah know, quite a bit. They'll, they'll, yeah, you know, they'll they'll write about uh, various ideas, but but readers understand that well, the rubbers never hit the road with these ideas. And yeah. my hope with the book was to take people through what I, what I went through in politics and see it up close and then in an honest way with, with sort of the ups and downs, the grittiness of it and emerge on the other side of that still with hope. Um, so my, you know, reclaiming hope is different than sort of, uh, other sort of, uh, 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 political memoirs that are sort of, you know, young idealist comes to Washington and, you know, leaves as a cynic. That, that wasn't my story. And, and, you know, now is a time where I think we need to be honest and realistic about our political challenges um, and, and have that drive us to engage rather than disengage, to um, to participate rather than withdraw and to do so with hope. And, um, you know, from, from what I, I'm hearing from readers, um, uh, that's what the book is helping many of them to do. Does it make you want uh, to write another book? Does it like, do you come through this <laughs> process like, are you in that phase yet where you're 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 sort of deeper into the thing you're you're sort of past the yeah. i have to get done and be finished with this ridiculous process <laughs> phase the the relief of like i can't believe i did that and and now you're listening to people respond and engage does it make you want to continue to do that what's what's that what's that like yeah you know i i enjoyed the writing process obviously there were there were 
um, you know, times when I had writer's block and, you know, when, when I, you know, doubted, you know, right. uh, the project, but, but I, overall, I really enjoyed the process and, um, you know, I, I have, uh, uh, we cut out a lot from the first book to, to keep it focused and, and to, to say what I thought was the core message of that book. Um, and I'm thinking through, uh, uh, other, I have some other ideas that, um, you know, I think need a, a bit more, uh, uh, workshopping and I want to test them out, uh, yeah. uh, kind of like I did with reclaiming hope, uh, you know, sort of test them out on the road and, and make sure that it's uh, what I'm thinking matches reality. But, um, but I, I do hope to, to write more in the future. Uh, if you got a few more minutes here, I'd love to do two, uh, kind of two things to land the plane. Is that work for you? Let's do it. Yeah. Okay, great. One of the things I'll do with, uh, with, um, a lot of my guests is I'll, ha I'll, I'll do sort of this establishing a bit of a lexicon and I'll sort of like give, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of lay some words on the table. And instead of asking you to define the word again, it's more like this, like, what does the word draw out of you? And so like, I'll, I'll set it up for you and say like, you know, what does it mean to be? And, and I'll give you mm -hmm. kind of a, like a short list and just, and just vamp on like for you specifically and, and, and personally, uh, we'll start with this. Like, what does it mean for you to be a Democrat? Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, what it means to me to be a Democrat um, is to uh, be looking to have those voices that are often not heard represented in our politics and uh, having their interest in, in advanced. Um, I, I think it means, especially now, this is, I think, what needs to be at the core of the Democratic Party. It means a, a commitment to basic proceduralism and hmm. and and uh, the, the idea that that government um, can work and, and can function and can serve the public. Um, uh, you know, Democrats often lose. Um, lose debates for the for the simple reason that when your when your answer is yes, but uh, that's a lot more difficult to convey than just no. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, um, but uh, if if uh, you know if if the party is is earnest and open and truly inclusive, um, that that that's that's my Democratic Party, and that's a party that I think can succeed. So let's broaden that and say, what does it mean for you personally? What does it mean to be political? Huh. Yeah. So 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 much to um, so much to say here. I, I think it's um, to be uh, both concerned and engaged uh, in some way um, with uh, the, the welfare of uh, the the community uh, in which you've been planted. Um, I think sometimes um, what what it does not mean to me uh, is that you must be consumed with politics all of the time, um, that you have to think politics is ultimate, um, but to be political um, or to think politically um, is, is to be concerned with how systems and cultures and societies um, are shaped to the advantage or disadvantage of those who inhabit it. What does it mean to be pro-life? Yeah, <laughs> well, well, 
you know, the, these these terms are, are so uh, uh, so so loaded, and yep. they become such such political footballs. I, I think it's I think it's important to say, you know, pro life is a term that has become almost uh, meaningless. So, for instance, if you if you look at some polls, you'll have more than fifty percent call themselves pro life. And more than fifty percent also call themselves pro-choice. So, right. so in yes. other words, there's a major slice of voters that say that they're both pro-life and pro-choice. And um, you know, there there's a way in which that can be true, but that's almost to sort of negate the 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 reason why the terms were, you know, or why we have the terms at all. So, the, to be pro-life is to be um, is it's is to uh, believe that there is um, is to reject the throwaway culture, to reject the idea that life uh, is expendable and can be um, can be uh, dismissed out of convenience. Um, I, I think for for me it includes not just sort of questions around the legality of abortion, um, but also the, the sort of social again the sort of social systems and material systems that make it more or less likely um, that uh, women will feel um, as though abortion is a um, is is a more uh, uh, necessary or uh, uh, um, a reasonable option um, and so uh, but, but what I don't want to do is sort of th there's a lot of um, to, to 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 be pro-life I don't draw strong lines around, exactly what legal parameters you have to uh, put around it, but to sort of dismiss, to, to say, oh, I'm pro-life because I support, you know, food stamps. Um, that, that, that's a contortion of, of the language that right. you're really just trying to, trying to be, um, uh, trying to navigate around the, the, the core issue. What does it mean to be a Bills fan? <laughs> uh, 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 a constant uh, 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 state of hopeful melancholia. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's so good. Uh, that's really yeah. good. Yeah. Um, where? Well, this is how I'd love to wrap it up. The title of your book and the tone of your book is deeply hopeful, and and which is, I, I think, just because just because you were in the mix and because like you said, there are lots and lots of commentary about, about the political system and politics and blah, blah, blah. That's written by folks who really don't have any experiential notion. There's no empirical knowledge. It's just stuff they've seen on television or their own. They're just sort of extrapolating from their own responses to responses of people who are responding to things that actually happened. Um, you're up in the mix. You saw, and, and you come to the, you know, you come to your audience with this hopefulness, with the sort of posture of there is, you know, it's sort of that Samwise Gamgee, <laughs> like there is good in the world <laughs> and it is worth fighting for uh, thing. And can you talk about, you know, with the title Reclaiming Hope, where where are you seeing that hope right now? I mean, you, you really get into it like this is what it looked like. This is what it looked, felt like to experience it then and you point forward a little bit in the book but what's it look like where are you seeing hope and light uh in in the world of kind of the broader world of politics the way you defined it earlier yeah you know i'm i'm seeing it in 
folks who have convictions uh, but have decided that their convictions matter most when when they're actually in the arena, when they're actually um, rubbing up against um, those who disagree and against the systems and processes that can actually put their ideas in, into effect. In other words, it's um, uh, I, I think we, we often have the sense that those who sort of protect their convictions, that that is the best thing you could do. But I, that is actually hopelessness. If you, hmm. close off, if you close off your convictions to the possibility of them actually being um, uh, effectuated, and put, put into effect, um, uh, th- then, um, uh, then, then you're, in a, you're in a bad place. But I see people like Van Jones. I see people like, um, uh, uh, like John Kasich. Uh, I see people like, Justin Gibney, the co-founder of the AND campaign, um, and, and just you know, friend, and not to be, um, but you know, I've just heard from so many people uh, responding to um, uh, uh, my my book and uh, to the broader sort of political changes. Say, you know, I, I'm not content to sit on on the sidelines. I'm going to try and be uh, faithful and steward the influence God has given me and. Uh, maybe I won't always know the right step to take, um, uh, but I have a responsibility to my neighbors mm. and, and to the truth to, to, to be in the fray. And, and I, I get a lot of, when people are in the fray, it opens up possibilities mm-hmm. uh, that, that would be closed otherwise. And, and, and to me, that is, um, uh, God can use that for his purposes in a way that, um, if if you stay at home and if you're sort of scared of of faltering, um, uh, uh, th- that is that is a form of hopelessness. That is a form of despair. That's really good, Michael. Thank you so much again for your time. Appreciate the check in. Um, appreciate what you're doing out there and in, in the world. Hey, thanks, man. Yeah, man. We'll talk again soon. Awesome. Grateful for you. Thanks, Justin. Bye. And thank you for listening. You can follow along with the conversation that Michael is facilitating at Twitter and Facebook by just searching his name, Michael Weir, and that's W-E-A-R. I'd also suggest checking out his Church Politics podcast. It's actually just called Church Politics, and Michael hosts it with uh, attorney and political strategist Justin Gibney. It's a really, really interesting podcast. I think you'll dig it. Resources for this episode, like every other episode, are available by visiting at cpodcast.com. And once you're there, consider supporting this podcast by clicking the Patreon link. Patrons had early access to this episode as well as every other episode, along with a few other perks I think you'll find interesting. Until next time.